And uh, when I called the union staffer who was on point for helping them negotiate their first contract, you know, I called him up and I was like, hey, how's the bargaining going? How are my guys doing? And he's like, bargaining? What bargaining? The company shut down the plant. Oh, no. And that was like a hit in the gut. I bet. It's a hit in the gut to me all these years later. And that experience actually led me to go to law school. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. I was very happy to have the opportunity to talk with Joseph Guy Varghese. Joseph is a longtime union organizer, leader, and activist who is the current executive director of Our Revolution, the Bernie Sanders-related entity that works for progressive causes and candidates and is the hub of many of the Sanders volunteers and their local organizations. Joseph and I spoke about the roots of his social conscience and his path into the union movement, his feelings about the Obama administration and their relationship to unions and issues like raising the minimum wage, as well as what he sees from the Biden administration so far, and what he and the progressive movement are pushing for from them. We had a good conversation, well worth your listen. So, after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Joseph Givargis of Our Revolution. Joseph is at OurRevolution.com. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Joseph, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. So my name is Joseph Givargis. I have been an organizer for more than two decades. Uh, I've worked on union organizing campaigns. I've worked on political campaigns. I've worked on a wide variety of issue campaigns. And, you know, my passion is really about organizing the grassroots and then using our progressive power to affect progressive policy change. So that's me in a nutshell. I'm happy to go deeper into any of those. Well, where did you grow up? Sure. Well, I grew up in Little Rock, Arkansas, and which was fascinating. My parents were immigrants from India. They had originally uh, emigrated to New York and then decided that they wanted to uh, find a place that was similar climate uh, to southern India. And so they ended up in all places, of all places, Little Rock, Arkansas. So that's where I grew up. And it was fascinating being, uh, you know, a person of color, a brown person growing up in 
you know, a community that was very just at that time was very black and white and people didn't know what to to make of somebody who didn't fit into either of those categories neatly. I bet it was. How, how long did you stay in Little Rock? I was in Little Rock up until I graduated from high school. So, uh, you know, moved there when I was about four years old and through high school. So uh, all of my formative years were there. Were you a good student? Was I a good student? Yes, I was. Yeah, I did well academically, but I was deeply involved in activism even then. Uh, my father is a priest. He ran the uh, social services, the social justice ministry for the Episcopal Diocese of Arkansas. That inspired me uh, because, you know, what what my dad did every day was, you know, he provided food, shelter, clothing to, you know, some of Little Rock's poorest people. You know, every day after school, I would get picked up and I would end up uh, hanging out at uh, St. Francis House, which was the name of the agency. And, you know, that really opened my eyes to a reality that you know, it was much different than the reality I knew growing up, right? I had food, I had shelter, I had clothing. But, you know, seeing a lot of folks coming in day after day, struggling because they didn't have what they needed to meet their basic needs, you know, really made an imprint on me. And that then translated into getting involved in what was then an emerging community service movement or national service movement, I saw that, you know, there was a need and a lot of my classmates, you know, in high school in particular, were disconnected, right, from the reality of what was happening in their community, right? Uh, most of my high school classmates were middle class, upper middle class, um, you know, Little Rock was incredibly segregated. A lot of my classmates, uh, most of my classmates were white, had very little interaction with the African-American community um, and with poor people. And so I actually, in high school, in addition to being a good student, uh, I tried to be a good activist. I started a community service club where to organize students to uh, work in the inner city of Little Rock, tutoring, working in homeless shelters, helping build homes, uh, working with the elderly. There was a divide that needed to be bridged. And I saw community service at that time as a path to do it. And the community service club that I started my high school was then exported to other high schools in and around uh, Little Rock, we were able to get thousands of, of young high school kids out in the community engaged in doing important community service. And that was also at a time where there was a discussion, a national discussion starting about encouraging community service as, you know, part of what it means to be an active citizen. And ultimately, that local work that I started in high school ended up, you know, I was able to be a part of the development of 
what eventually became AmeriCorps. Is that related at all to Clinton being the governor and then president coming from your state? Yeah, there was. Uh, Bill Clinton, as governor, uh, you know, named me the uh, Youth of the Year, you know, the Arkansas Young Adult of the Year because of a lot of my community service activities, uh, primarily. When I was in college, he was elected to become president. But independent of that, I was involved in this kind of growing national service movement that, you know, eventually culminated with the creation of AmeriCorps. And then um, I was nominated to serve on the National Commission that oversaw AmeriCorps, didn't make the cut, but was named uh, to the Tennessee Commission that oversaw AmeriCorps in Tennessee, because at that time I was in college. Where'd you go to school? Uh, Vanderbilt University. Mm -hmm. How was that for you? You know, it was a very similar experience as growing up in Little Rock. It was, uh, you know, not a very diverse place. It was a largely white, affluent student body. I took it upon myself again there to become very active in creating community service opportunities for students to you know, engage with people uh, they normally would not engage with and tried to expand the community service programming at Vanderbilt. Um, and I eventually became student body president at Vanderbilt. And a lot of that was run on expanding community service, service learning programs, uh, kind of a progressive agenda. Well, you were a young man in a hurry, huh? Yeah, I have no, like you know, looking back on it, like I'm like, what was I thinking? One thing I was curious about when you're talking about it, it seems like your father being an Episcopal priest is and kind of modeling some of this for you was important. But I don't think that many immigrants from South India are Episcopalian. How did he come to that? People don't realize this, but there is a community of Christians in southern India, uh, primarily in the state of Kerala, which is where my family is from, that have been Christian since uh, the time of Christ. Uh, St. Thomas, who is one of the Twelve Apostles, the legend is he's, he uh, evangelized India, and he was martyred in India. And so there is a small community maybe 30 million, small when you think about, you know, India. the overall population of <laughs> India, right. You know, it's a drop yeah. in the bucket when you think about, you know, Hinduism, when you think about Islam, when you think about the other great traditions in India, you know, it's a small community, uh, but has a long history. Well, what did you study at Vanderbilt? What was your major? Uh, I studied sociology and religion. The primary emphasis was really on social movements and how people of faith like Mahatma Gandhi, Martin Luther King, were inspired by their convictions, right, to lead lives that resulted in transformational change. A lot of this was influenced by my father. Obviously, his conviction about the importance of service and then taking it even further, I mean, one thing I realized, Nathaniel, was that, you know, and a lot of this was uh, probably came out of my college experience. What I realized was, you know, community service by itself wasn't enough to address the systemic 
problems in our society. The way I think about it now is, you know, what's the difference between a, a do-gooder and a true activist? A do-gooder walks in to a homeless shelter and says, you know, where's the serving spoon? And, you know, the activist walks in and says, why is the shelter here in the first place? And what do we need to do to address it? And honestly, we need both of those types. Yes, that's right. That's right. We do need both. And look, I see it as a continuum. You engage people in service that hopefully leads them to reflect, to become more conscientious citizens. And they then start thinking about what are some of the root causes of these problems, right? And how do we begin to address them? That was kind of my path was, you know, from becoming, you know, and I don't want to say do-gooder in a negative way, but coming from, you know, I went from someone who was working uh, in homeless shelters, volunteering to someone who wanted to really tackle the root causes of a lot of these problems. And that for me ended up being uh, the labor movement. Well, tell me how you got into the labor movement. When I think about root causes, I, I concluded what would be the most effective way to try to address a lot of the things that I saw was wrong in the world, right? Whether it was, you know, people not being able to afford the necessities of life, uh, disparate health care outcomes, uh, bad education systems. I didn't grow up in a union household, but I learned about the labor movement in college. But at that time, it was academic. But recruiters from the AFL-CIO's Organizing Institute, which was just uh, getting going in 1995, I think the Organizing Institute started in 94, I believe, but they showed up on Vanderbilt's campus, and it was almost like a blessing. Uh, I didn't realize that there was a path uh, for a young person who didn't come out of a union shop to get involved in economic organizing. The union movement in some ways is a way to level the economic playing field and address a lot of the different issues, not just uh, you know economics, but from healthcare to other things. I saw it as a way to address a lot of the issues that I cared about. One way to get at the root of a lot of the, uh, the problems we were facing was by helping to organize unions, rebuild the American labor movement. And so, you know, I signed up in 95 uh, and then, but for a short break to go to law school, haven't looked back. What kind of roles have you had? Well, I started out with the United Steelworkers organizing in the South, which was incredibly challenging. The steel industry had been moving plants from, you know, the industrialized Northeast, the heavily unionized Northeast, had been moving plants into, you know, Alabama and Tennessee in order to escape the union. And so I was sent to these places to organize these new mini mills, these new facilities that were getting set up that were non-union. So, you know, I did everything, you know, as a kind of like as a rank and file organizer. Um, but what I learned actually was 
the rules are stacked against workers. Uh, and one specific experience that I think was formative is I helped organize a steel finishing company outside of Nashville. And it was incredibly challenging. Workers were afraid, right? These are big, burly steel workers. I remember sitting in their living rooms, urging them to sign a union card. You know, their hands were shaking, right? The pens in their hands shaking. But, you know, I was able to move the majority of those workers to support the union. And I felt incredibly good about it, right? A victory in the non-union South in an industry that was trying to escape unionization, you know, and the way it worked in the steel workers is after you win a union election, the organizer then gets sent somewhere else. You know, I got deployed to another campaign, but, you know, about a month or two later, I called to check on how the bargaining was going for these workers, right? So after they formed a union, they then would go into bargaining with their employer to, address, you know, the problems that they were facing in the workplace. And uh, when I called the union staffer who was uh, on point for helping them negotiate their first contract, you know, I called him up and I was like, hey, how's the bargaining going? How are my guys doing? And he's like, bargaining? What bargaining? The company shut down the plant. Oh, no. And that was like a hit in the gut. I bet. It's hitting the guts of me all these years later. Yeah. They were going to snuff that that movement out. Yep, by uh, shutting down the plant. Yep, and so all those people you talked into it lost their jobs. That's right. Yeah, that's that's, right. That's just foul play, isn't it? Yeah, no, it's, it's evil. What it made me reflect on was, you know, labor law in this country doesn't work. Well, it's gone way backwards since the 30s. Exactly. In the 30s and 40s, you had a president like FDR who said, look, it's the official policy of the United States, right, to have collective bargaining. You have a right to organize. Now, there were battles, yep. right? That, Big battles. Uh, real battles. But, you know, we got to a point where the fundamental rights of workers to organize was respected um, and was codified into law and presence of both parties didn't really try to bust unions. But, you know, that's all gone backwards over the last 30, 40 years. The experience I had in at that plant in Tennessee, you know, just was really, a, you know, a punch in the gut, a moment where I realized that the rules were rigged against workers, right? There was absolutely no way that any worker who wanted to act in concert with their co-workers to exercise power, there's no way they were going to win under the rules as it is. And if we wanted to rebuild the labor movement, we had to have a much more aggressive strategy. And that experience actually led me to go to law school. Where'd you go? Um, I went to Georgetown. Mm-hmm. And yeah. did you study labor law? I did. I studied labor law, civil rights, legislation and policy. You know, my thinking was I'm an organizer, but I needed to know the rules and the system that we were working in. And I thought, a, you know, a legal education would give me some insight on the laws and the regulations, how they're made and uh, what I could do to 
influence it. Um, that being said, you know, I went to law school, I got that background, and then went straight back to organizing. Uh, right after I graduated, I went back to being a you know rank and file union organizer. At that time, it was, I joined SEIU, the Service Employees International Union, and uh, went back to that. But the difference was uh, at SEIU, we were engaged in trying to to organize workers using creative methods, innovative methods, and really disregard the laws on the books that really didn't protect workers. That started a different journey for me. Went back to union organizing, but it, you know what was the difference there is when we were at SEIU, instead of running elections through the U.S. government, which is how labor law is structured, we would put pressure on companies, whether it's economic pressure, whether it's reputational pressure, and try to get executives to agree to free and fair union election rules that were, you know, much more stringent than what was on the books legally, right? So we were basically trying to get private law, given that the, you know, the public law didn't really work for workers. One of our breakthrough victories using that model was we were able to organize uh, about 15,000 uh, low-wage hospital workers in California who were part of the Catholic Healthcare West system. And Catholic Healthcare West agreed to a free and fair election process because we waged a campaign that exposed the hypocrisy of a Catholic healthcare system that really didn't follow Catholic social teaching when it came to respecting worker rights, right? The Catholic Church has had a long history of encouraging workers to join unions. But, you know, Catholic Healthcare West was being hypocritical. We exposed it. And, you know, through pressure and leverage, we ultimately got them to say they would respect the right of workers to organize. And it led to one of the biggest union victories in decades. Um, and this was in, you know, early 2000s. You were, I guess, quite a number of years in, you know, working for unions. And it was unfortunately a period of real decline. When you look back at it, what are your main learnings? You know, and I'm still at it. A lot of different learnings. I think my work with within labor, I think labor, a strong union movement is vitally important for our democracy. We need to have a countervailing center of power to counteract corporate power. So I think the role of unions is really important. I thought you were full-time at Our Revolution. Are you also working for a union? Yeah, I am the executive director of Our Revolution. But yeah, a core fight is still things like 15 and the union, right, that our movement is supporting. What was Good Jobs Nation? It's all part of the same kind of story. We learned that we could organize to put pressure on the executives of different companies, right? Like the CEO of Catholic Healthcare West. We could get them to say, all right, we'll respect the right of workers to organize at this company. What we came to the conclusion was within the labor movement was you couldn't go company by company and get to scale. You couldn't 
get enough CEOs to say they would respect the rights of workers to organize, that it would make a transformational difference, right? We could not get to significant union density using that campaign method. So we created Good Jobs Nation uh, because we wanted to put pressure on Democratic politicians to stand with workers using whatever power they had. When Obama was running for president, I met with him with other labor leaders, and we said, look, we think the number one priority of the president of the United States should be using the power of presidency to lift workers out of poverty, to promote unionization. This was in 2007. And we laid out a plan. And the plan was this. We said, we want you to use legislative power to reform broken labor laws. Obama made a commitment that he would champion the Employee Free Choice Act once he got elected president. You cannot just use legislative power. You have to use your executive power. Previous presidents from George Bush to Clinton have used executive power to drive their policy agendas. And what we proposed was something very similar to what George Bush did. George Bush set up the White House Office on Faith-Based Initiatives. He appointed a, a faith czar in the White House. He had a theory, right? They wanted to, Karl Rove wanted to move money to the religious right under the guise of compassionate conservatism. But he set up an office in the White House, sub-offices and agencies to move funding to a political, you know, to something that he saw as a political and policy priority. And so what we said to Obama is you can do the same thing, right? If creating good jobs is your top priority, you can create a White House office. You can appoint a good jobs czar, and you can put sub-offices in agencies to drive that agenda. Why does that matter? The U.S. government is the biggest purchaser of goods and services in the American economy, right? Over a trillion dollars. The government does over a trillion dollars worth of business with private sector companies. But the problem is, you know, the government's business model is, is easy to explain. It's like we're going to do business with companies that pay workers as little as possible. And what we said to Obama is you could use your executive power, create a White House office, and then promulgate policies that would overturn that low-wage business model, the government's low-wage business model. A long way of saying what did I learn is uh, we needed to move to a higher level of engagement with elected leaders. We got commitments from Obama to do this, to do transformational stuff. He created in his first month in office after he won, he created the White House Task Force on Middle-Class Working Families. That was our office. That was the office that my team proposed. Uh, he appointed Joe Biden as the chair of the White House Task Force on Middle-Class Working Families. So Joe Biden was our good job czar. And then he appointed various cabinet secretaries and staff to be a part of this task force. And, you know, look, I spent the better part of Obama's first term doing meetings at the White House and proposing policies, right, that 
executive uh, actions, regulatory changes that would increase wages for workers, that would help workers organize. But at the end of the day, none of our proposals saw the light of day. Right. It was no say poi day. And the excuses that we got from the White House, right, from the vice president and his team, a lot of them are still are, are, are back in power right now. The responses we got were like, uh, you know, the political the White House political shop would say, oh, it's politically impossible. The Chamber of Commerce will come after us. Uh, you know, White House legal counsel. They're like, this is illegal. We can't set social policy through federal procurement which is bullshit. LBJ did it, right? If you want to do business with the United States government, you have to desegregate uh, your workforce. You have to have affirmative action plans. I mean, that was transformative. That was social policy engineered by government spending. But they said it was illegal. They couldn't do it. Um, you know, so it was, you know, from a president who campaigned on Cisse Puede, every, every meeting we went to, it was no say Puede. And it was incredibly disappointing in terms of our top two priorities, right? Use legislative power, executive power. The vice president and the president didn't use their executive power during the first term. And then we got screwed on the legislative ask, right? Obama kept telling us, yes, I will, you know, employ free choice. Labor law reform will be one of my top priorities when I get elected. Well, it was health care. He would tell us it's after health care. It, it just never became a priority. We got yes. So when you asked me what's Good Jobs Nation, it was the response to our experience with Democrats during that first term. Did that come out of SEIU or wherever you were, or is it something you did separately? I was assigned by SEIU in 2007 to become deputy director of a labor coalition called Change to Win, which you're familiar with, right? A group of unions broke away from the AFL-CIO to really focus on union growth, right? And reversing the decline. And so it was in that role that I was in those meetings with Senator Obama. Uh, I was in those meetings with the transition team, you know, near, near a tandem, right? I remember flying to Chicago, meeting with her, right? Those are the folks I had to deal with. I was assigned by SEIU to help lead cha the Change to Win Coalition. So it was in that role. So anyway, after that first term experience, you know, we kind of took a step back and we're like, and I actually, I, I launched a, uh, a kind of a debrief process because it was the troops and treasure of the labor movement that helped elect Barack Obama. And in particular, right, SEIU and other unions, the change to win unions came out for Barack Obama when the rest of labor was going for Hillary. And so you would think that they would give uh, some due consideration to our policy priorities uh, and they would act on. It. I was like, how did we get nothing out of this White House? I actually door knocked, interviewed about 50 elites, right? Like the movers and shakers in Washington. Some were, you know, former senior level White House officials, you know, worked on the Hill, people who are, you know, Hill staffers, members of Congress. And my question was really simple. Like, how did this happen? 
right? How, how did the labor movement that threw down on transformational change and threw down on Barack Obama, secured commitments for legislative action, executive action, how did we get nothing? The top answers were these. One is Democrats don't believe that collective bargaining is a key part of rebuilding the middle class. They think all you need is progressive taxation. You need to send everyone to college. But unions, which used to be part of uh, part a pillar of democratic economic policy, no longer was. And those were the people that were on the White House economic team. Then the second thing that made the light bulb go off in my head was a woman who's a noted economist. She is actually in the White House now. She was not then. She got up. This is here in D.C. She looked at her, you know, when I said, what, how the fuck do we get nothing? She looked at her windows like, you know what, Joseph? The streets are empty. You guys played the inside game. I heard that not just from her, but from others, right? And that's true. We did. We went to meetings. We proposed policies, but there was no outside pressure on the administration to act. And so it was out of that experience, Nathaniel, that the fight for 15, the strike movements started. It started after Obama's second term to call the question on Obama and Biden and whether they were going to use their power to stand with workers, right? And so Good Jobs Nation was really the focus was we focused on striking low-wage federal contract workers. SEIU struck McDonald's workers, worked with USCW. They were part of Change to Win, right, to organize and strike. Walmart workers worked with the Teamsters to strike port truck drivers, right? We launched a nationwide strategy to put workers on the streets. And then in Washington, in D.C., we drew a circle around D.C. and the workers that we struck were all workers who were on federal contracts, right? So they may work at the uh, at a McDonald's, a private sector company, but they worked at the McDonald's in the Pentagon or they worked at the McDonald's at the Smithsonian. Right. So that means the government was giving them a lease, right, or a concession or a contract. And therefore, the government could set the terms for how that employer treated its workers. And so what Good Jobs Nation was, you know, it was a very strategic and targeted effort as part of the larger strike movement, but to really call the question. Mr. President and Joe Biden, you may not have the power to raise wages at McDonald's for a McDonald's worker, you know, who's at the mall, but you do have the power to raise wages for the McDonald's workers who are on military bases all around the United States. We struck workers outside the White House, even though a lot of people on the left and then labor didn't want us to, we did. It ultimately got a response. And let me just stop by saying, What I learned was you got to put people on the streets. You can't just have good policy. You have to have a movement. You've got to have people demanding change. You also need allies. And when we did that first strike outside the White House in 2013, this is 2013. 
the only Democrats who would stand up and call on Obama and Biden to take action. We got Keith Ellison, who at that time was the chair of the CPC, the Congressional Progressive Caucus, and Bernie Sanders. I remember saying, you know, look, I mean, the only people we can get to come out, right? Pelosi's not going to march with us. Hoyer's not coming out to stand with workers. And I said, but we got Bernie and we got Keith and we got Raul Grijalva. I remember like, you know, DC insiders saying, oh, they're a bunch of backbenchers. No one's going to pay attention to you guys. I think the rest is history, but, uh, you know, it was putting together grassroots pressure, people on the streets, identifying politicians who were willing to take a stand and even stand up to their own party uh, that helped us start to make progress. Seven months after that first strike, Barack Obama stood at the State of the Union, January 2014, and he said, I'm going to use my executive power to raise wages on federal contracts, right, to 1010. Congress has failed to act. I'm going to, so therefore, as the chief executive officer of the U.S. government, I'm going to lead by example and raise wages. And I urge every mayor, every CEO to, you know, do the same. What was significant, Nathaniel, is that executive order was sitting on the shelf. We gave it to them first term. But it wasn't until, you know, workers hit the street that they pulled, they started using that. Now, that being said, we were striking for 15 and they gave us 10-10, which, you know, is insulting. But it was a breakthrough moment. And shortly after that, American Airlines, Disneyland, you started seeing movement. People started moving to raise wages in the private sector. And then as the fight for 15 got momentum, you started seeing more and more jurisdictions move out on 15. It's a very good illustration of, you know, where you are and kind of where you come from politically. It's interesting that it's still so current with the challenge with the new administration. How did you land in the role at Our Revolution? Starting in 2013, I mean, Bernie was one of the few politicians that would strike with workers. And I got to work with him very closely, you know, starting in 2013 and 2014, he came to every single strike. I pulled probably 24 strikes of low wage workers. He came to everyone in DC. Not only that, right? In 2015, he and Keith were the first to introduce a 15 minimum wage bill. And they did that at our strike at the Capitol. My strategy was to really work with, you know, the coalition of the willing. And Bernie believed both in our theory of change and the fight for 15. And so, you know, that started my relationship with uh, Senator Sanders. And then, uh, you know, I came to our revolution primarily because, you know, I also worked with Larry Cohen. Do you know Larry? By the way? I don't. I mean, I know okay. I know who he is, but I don't know him. Yeah. yeah, so he's the board chair of our revolution. He's a longtime uh, former president of the CWA, the Communication Workers of America. So, you know, it was through those relationships, right, with Bernie and uh, his allies that I decided to come on board with our revolution, um, primarily because a presidential campaign comes and goes. It's just a one shot. But our revolution was really something about building something that's long lasting 
that would continue to organize way past one election cycle. And, you know, look, I'm an organizer at the end of the day, not a political hack. I want to mobilize people to fight on not just union rights or higher wages, but, you know, health care and other priorities. And so I saw our revolution and Bernie's vision of our revolution as something that really synced with what I was called to do in the world versus just working on a political campaign, if that makes sense. It does. What is our revolution? You know, obviously, both Sanders' campaigns were very successful and very close to winning the Democratic nomination, and he got a very active and passionate following. I assume that some of the assets of that sit in our revolution. How big of a group is it? How active is it? What are you up to? What our revolution is fundamentally about, it's a movement, not a moment. We're kind of a permanent ongoing political campaign, one that never demobilizes. There's four key planks. The first one is we have organized a national network of local Our Revolution chapters. So when you think about where did all the Bernie volunteers go, right, all the enthusiastic burners, well, a lot of them are now Our Revolution local leaders and activists. Those Locals, right, whether it's our revolution, St. Louis or our revolution, Illinois, our revolution chapters at city, county, state levels, what they're doing is three things. One is electing progressive champions. How do we find the next Bernie Sanders? How do we support the next Bernie Sanders, whether they're running for school board, whether they're running for city council or state senate? So. Last year in 2020, you know, a lot of the energy and focus was around the presidential. But, uh, you know, we endorsed over 450 candidates. A majority of those were down ballot. Over 74 percent won. And so that's one track. Right. Uh, we're organizing local groups to elect uh, progressive champions. We want to create a bench so that Bernie wasn't just, a, you know, a one-shot wonder, right? But a reflection of a movement that's growing. The second thing the groups are doing is fighting for progressive policies. At the end of the day, the stuff that you see locally, the stuff that happens at a national level, usually percolates up from the local level. Um, And you see that with the fight for 15, right? Way before anything really happened at the national level, you had cities and counties moving out on 15. So in the same way, we're really the tip of the spear in trying to move and pass progressive policies as at a local level. So it's everything from Illinois, right? Our group was in the fight to end cash bail, right? First state last week to end cash bail. That's huge. And it's now a model for other jurisdictions. And at a certain moment, there's going to be a tipping point, right, where that's going to be a model for national replication, whether it's on health care, whether it's on criminal justice reform, uh, whether it's on, uh, you know, things like ranked choice voting, uh, defending our democracy. We're trying to identify 
key policy fights where we can make a difference in advance uh, progressive vision of governance. And we do that in partnership with the progressive champions we help elect, right? So in Illinois, we won the cash bail bill, but it was championed by Robert Peters, state senator, young African-American, head of the Black Caucus. He's one of our endorsed candidates. You know, he's somebody that we uh, have supported in his development as a political leader. So those are the two things, elect progressive champions, fight for progressive policies. The third thing, and I think this is somewhat unique, is, you know, given our system of democracy, we have two parties. You know, we don't have a multi-party system. We have to live within the world as it is. And unfortunately, uh, that means progressives have to fight within the Democratic Party to make sure that we have a seat at the table, to make sure that our candidates have a fair uh, shot at running, to make sure our policies make it into the platform. And so another part of what we do is we're fighting to make the Democratic Party more progressive at every level. So, you know, in California, we just, uh, you know, ran slates for positions in the California Democratic Party. Our revolution activists are now on the state committee in Colorado, in Florida, in Maine. This is all in the last few months. That's what we're doing. What are the assets? Well, a lot of this is really the energy and the commitment of Bernie volunteers and their small donor gifts, right, that keep the movement going. Um, So, you know, we've inherited kind of the spirit and the energy of the two presidential campaigns. I was pretty acquainted with that, but, you know, I wanted to hear your version of it and see where things stand right now. Why is it a good job for you? I think there is a political realignment happening in this country. One of my first memories is as a kid, that's why in second grade, first grade, you know, I remember watching TV. Carter was leaving the White House. Ronald Reagan was getting sworn in. That's been my experience, right? It's been a right wing national government or a neoliberal national government, right? Which is what we got with like Clinton and Obama. And so, you know, I think Bernie's race really kind of opened the possibility of imagining something, a different political future. I wanted to be a part of that. It's a good job for someone uh, who is passionate about organizing. What I've learned through my, you know, whether it's through my academic study, you know, at Vanderbilt, studying social movements, um, or as an organizer and strategist engaging in the White House, or as an organizer, you know, trying to get workers to go out on strike, is you've got to really put all of these pieces in play in order to create change, right? You've got to mobilize grassroots activists. You've got to work with electeds who are your allies. And our revolution really, I think, is one of the few organizations that, you know, brings it all together. So, and I'm also just super lucky to be here. So as someone who's committed to this as a, you know, as a vocation. I felt like when you're talking about uh, Biden being the head of the workers. The White House task force. Yes. Yeah. That there was a 
a tinge to the way you talked about it that reflected on how you think about his presidency right now. And his presidency comes after one of the worst and most dangerous presidencies in the history of the country, one which in a certain way is not over. The threat looms over us of a return, either by Trump or by someone like him. The threat to democracy itself with him is is stark. We were able to win the White House with Biden. People could have many, many opinions about it, but a lot of people think that any other candidate would have lost. Uh, some people think any other candidate would have won on our side. Impossible to rerun that. But Biden has taken a lot of progressive positions, but there are going to be some disappointments. How do you think about that role when the politics are, are so high stakes for as much to get done to prove that Democrats can govern effectively so that we don't risk a return to what we just had? Was Trump a clear and present danger of democracy? Absolutely. Did he have to go? Yes. But how did Trump ascend to the Oval Office? I think it was because he ran as an economic populist. And he delivered a speech uh, when he was running for president at the uh, at the uh, New York Economic Club. Right. So he's like on Wall Street. He says, you know, every tax, right, every decision I make as president is going to result more jobs, better wages. I mean, that kind of floored me. And a lot of people laughed at the time, uh, you know, because they didn't think he was a serious contender. But, you know, he used populist rhetoric. He still, even uh, back then, he talked about making remaking the GOP into a workers' party. Part of the reason I think he won Nathaniel, and, you know, I think the data on the ground shows it, right, uh, the blue wall, right, uh, union strongholds like Michigan and Ohio, other places, right, the places that we Democrats should have won went to Trump. Generally, with, with him getting fewer voters than Romney, though, the turnout on our side was down. I think he made some strategic moves that helped him that were populist. You know, the anti-immigration thing plays well in certain places, unfortunately. And the trade stuff, I think, helped him. He did go to rev up the economy at many costs to important regulations on the environment and things like that. But he was very concerned about, I doubt about jobs, but probably more about employers. Yeah, I don't, I mean, I'm not. Uh, you're not defending him at all, I understand. No, 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 I'm not defending him or. But you're making the point that the populist ideas have popularity. Yes, that's right. I mean, and I, well, I think the key, the, the t thing that was most telling was over 200 pivot counties that voted for Barack Obama twice and then flipped to Trump. Right. Most of these were in the industrial heartland. There were places like Trumbull County, right, where, you know, Trump went and said, don't sell your homes. Your jobs are coming back to GM workers. Right. Um, he did that. Right. He went to uh, Des Moines County, Iowa. Right. Hasn't voted for a Republican in decades. 
Uh, I think the last time was 1972 for Nixon. But he went there and he's like, you know, I'm going to be the greatest uh, jobs creator God ever created. It was just full throated. uh, Like, I'm going to stand up for the regular working American. And he failed to deliver. And that's clear. And so I guess what I'm saying is, like, I think if Democrats and if Biden and Harris want to stay in power, they need to aggressively champion progressive policies, right? They need to say, we're going to keep jobs in the U.S. We're going to rebuild the American middle class, higher wages, right? We're going to raise the minimum wage to 15. We said we're going to deliver. You know, that's the type of thing that I think uh, Biden, Harris, and the rest of the Democratic establishment need to understand. I think they do. I think they are working on it. They're not going to agree with move on or our revolution or anybody on everything. That's yeah. right. I mean, that's in fact, that's right. if they did, you guys would want rightly to move them further. Right. That's the that's your job. Yes, that's right. Because fifteen dollars isn't enough either. No, that's right. That's right. And in fact, it should be adjusted. It should be set to where it should be and then adjusted automatically, right? For inflation. Yeah, yeah totally. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Based on my interaction with Biden when he was vice president and with his, you know, some of his key advisors, I'm surprised at their willingness to embrace uh, a lot of things that they weren't willing to embrace, you know, the last time they were in power. I bet you a good part of that was how close he came to not winning the nomination and to whom. Yes, that's right. And also he's listening, I think, to Sanders, I mean, and to Warren and to people across the spectrum. I, he's got a hell of a job to balance the breadth of the coalition that got him in. Yes, he does. And But I would argue the same advisors in the White House – they saw the workers striking. They've seen the kids demonstrating for gun safety, right? Uh, They're seeing the energy that helped propel them into office and they're amending their policy views accordingly. And they did that both in the, in their campaign platform and the democratic party platform. It's great. And I just think they need to be bold on some signature things like 15 and a union. And also things like, I don't know, some version of H.R. 1 that need to reform the democracy and harden our institutions because we, we, we really showed that they're not there. And the Republicans are hard at work in changing the, the rules of the road, too, in the election. So there's so much work to do on so many fronts. And they came in with a, an economic crisis and a health crisis and, uh, and a climate crisis. So that's it's right. a big deal. No, I think... Yeah, no, democracy reform is a top priority for our revolution. Um, you know, look, it's in, in some ways, it's a, I think about it as, you know, just like labor law, labor union elections are rigged, you know, workplace, right, because bosses have undermined the law in the same way, right, Republicans have undermined all of our institutions, our laws, our norms, in order to make sure they stay in power. And it's critically important for Democrats to not just think about good policy, but also to think about how to advance good politics, right? Whether it's HR1, 
or things like strengthening the union movement. I mean, the other side is doing it like crazy and has been for 40 years or more. We need to strengthen our allies and make the rules ones that serve, you know, fair elections and our team more broadly. Yeah, that's right. That's right. One reflection I've got about Democrats and Republicans when it comes to power is I really think Republicans understand power in a way we don't. Right. So when Republicans get elected, like, you know, Scott Walker, John Kasich, one of the first things they do is bust unions. They understand unions are the troops and treasure of the Democratic Party. It is not hidden what they're doing. Right. But Democrats get in office like Barack Obama. And there is a direct correlation between whether Democrats winning and progressive policies succeeding and union density, right? We had, you know, some of the greatest advances, you know, in civil rights, uh, Medicare, Medicaid happened at the height of union power in the United States. The Democrats, when they get in power, should strengthen the labor movement, right? They should build the allied institutions that are going to help us these are things that are strategically important. They're not just good policy. They're good politics. But I'm not sure they always understand that. It's all very contested always. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it's good to have you on. Uh, anything else you want to say? No, no. Thank you for giving me the opportunity. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.